Well, this morning, uh, I'd like us to look at Isaiah uh, chapters 28 through 35. Now, that's a reasonable section. Um, part of the reason for this is it, it, it just, I, I don't think we can likely sit in three to four months of judgment oracles about ancient nations, which is precisely what we would be doing if we took chapter by chapter. I mean, if we taught a course in Isaiah, that's what you'd want to do, work through all the background and all of the rest. But for Sunday mornings, it just doesn't seem like we want to be in judgment for two years or so. So, uh, I want to just hit some highlights out of the text, try to provide a bit of a coherent thread through it. They are thematically linked. Um, and also to encourage you, um, over the last few weeks, when I take a larger section, my expectation in some ways is that you will work through it on your own afterwards, uh, or, or guess a little bit and read a few chapters ahead uh, coming up to the next Sunday. So perhaps I ought to say, uh, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at chapters 36 through 39. So if you have some time this week, work through that 36 through 39. The week following it will be chapter 40 alone, uh, but this morning, 28 through 35, leaving a lot of very good things unsaid. Let me just read a little bit out of chapter 28. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, then 14 through 19, and then I'm going to pray. This is the Word of God. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord is one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Verse 14, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. The overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you'll, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer 
terror. Before we uh, look at this passage and some others uh, in this collection of oracles, uh, we're going to pray. Also going to pray for uh, Jake. Jake is preaching uh, in Port Perry uh, this morning, so we'll pray for him as well. Lord, we uh, thank you for uh, the way you transform the landscape overnight uh, into a place of, of shimmering beauty. And we thank you for spring as well. We are aware the snow won't last out a day or two. But it's a parting gift from winter from your hand, and so we thank you for it. We thank you for its beauty. We thank you that you are a God who can envision such things, who can bring such things to pass. You are also a God who will bring thaw and melt, and you are a God who will bring a time of planting and uh, then harvesting. We thank you that the seasons and the times are in your hands. Help us to be consciously dependent on you for all of the gifts that we receive. Help us not to uh, adopt even subtly an atheistic, mechanistic view of the universe and reality. We, We realize that there are Uh, genuine causal relationships, there is cause and effect, and yet uh, behind all causal sequences, there is your providential care. So help us to trust you, to look to you, uh, to be our God and to order our lives. And Father, we would pray that this morning you would open your word to us. There's a lot of material to try to cover. Uh, We recognize that. Uh, I recognize keenly my uh, inability uh, to work through even well, any, any passage of your word is too much for any of us. And so we are dependent on you. We, we ask that you will uh, exalt your name in our midst. Give us power and insight and ability that we simply don't have on our own. Uh, help us to benefit from your word. And we pray the same for uh, our brothers and sisters at Port Perry Baptist Church this morning where Jake is preaching. Give him a full measure of your spirit. Give him clarity of mind and strength and verbal expression. Uh, but may, but may it be your word that goes out. Uh, we thank you that, we thank you that your word is not dependent on uh, the purity or clarity of your human mediators, but that your spirit can autonomously take your word and put it in someone's heart and mind. Uh, so we look to his agency. We pray that you will bless uh, all of your children all over the world, wherever your word is open this morning. Enrich, may it be an enriching and an enlivening experience. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, quick note. Uh, another reason, actually, that we, I'm taking somewhat larger sections in Isaiah, is Isaiah was a prophet for a very long period of time. So he prophesied for decades, actually. His oracles are collected thematically somewhat, in this book. But Isaiah didn't go out and in consecutive weeks over a year just preach these messages to people. So what we have is we have an inspired book, which is a collection of his prophetic oracles which span decades. So when we bring those together, there's a sense in which it wasn't meant to be read in terms of week after week after week after week after week of judgment, 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 judgment. 
you know, he, the, the word of the Lord would come to him, and he'd get up, and, and, he'd, and he'd prophesy against Felicia. And three and a half years later, the word of the Lord would come to him, and he'd get up, and he'd prophesy against Babylon. So, the collection of these oracles in this book isn't quite the way they were delivered during his decades-long preaching and prophetic ministry. Okay? So, that's just a note in terms of why also we're taking somewhat larger sections. Now, Isaiah 28, the woe to Ephraim is the woe really against Samaria, the capital city. That's the place of beauty. That's the place of their pride. The Lord is going to bring down their capital city. He's going to destroy it. And when He does… There's repetition, the wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, we trampled underfoot, it's a fading flower, glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley. It could have been wonderful. It was wonderful. But people started trusting in their city and in their politics and in their economy. Uh, today in Arcadian society, we could add things like health care. They were trusting in all their infrastructure rather than trusting in God. So God says that they are ripe for destruction. They are going to be destroyed. And when that happens... The Lord is going to be the crown, not Samaria. And so there's this change here where rather than putting faith and trust in things of the world, people, places, etc., there is a recognition that it is God and God only who is the source of our beauty. This is, this is desperately important. Uh, the, the language is very important. The people are looking at God like, like uh, the wreath of beauty or even like a victor's crown. God is what, or Samaria, their, their world is what makes, is what gives them a sense of beauty. Their world is what supplies their aesthetic. Their world is what supplies their victory and their accomplishments. It's what has pride of place in their lives. They get their meaning from it. You know, t- today, in some ways, this is, this is a pretty big stretch, I do acknowledge, but in some ways, just whispering around the periphery of this, you may be able to see it in how some people really almost get uh, a large part of the, their identity from their connection with a particular sports team that they cheer for, right? And, and so, when, when their team does well, they are elated. And it's amazing, because you, you can actually begin to see the, how, how quirky psychology is. When their team wins, it's, we won last night. We. We won last night. And when the team loses, it's they lost last night. They. You know, it, it's amazing how, how we split in terms of psychological shielding. You know, when it's lost, it's them. When it's a victory, it's us, right? But you can see that we begin to actually enter into some of these things. We get our sense of meaning or a bit of identity from external groups or whatever it is. And the reality is, you, you know this, in, in the Winter Olympics, when Canada's very well, you know, everyone has a little bit of a, everyone feels pretty good as a Canadian. But if Canada's not doing very well, it's a little bit discouraging. We actually have identity in these areas. So it's not hard to see here how people have gotten some of their identity from their cities, from, from their nationality and all the rest. But all these things are fading. They're flawed. God says, no, 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 no. No, one day you're going to get your identity from me. One day I'm going to be your wreath. I'm going to be your gold medal. One day I'm going to be what you care for. I'm going to be what you care about. I'm going to be the crown. I'm going to be the victor's wreath. You will see me as being beautiful. The remnant of my people will see me this way. Why? Because he's going to be a spirit of justice. 
and a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. What God is going to do is He is going to empower people to fight battles that ought to be fought and to ensure justice is done. That's the beauty God is talking about here. The reason God is beautiful, the reason that He is a crown of royal splendor is because He's going to work to make people do what's right, and He's going to empower them. See, one of the things that we know psychologically is that often today, the people who care the most about justice, the people who care the most about the environment, the people who care the most about slavery around the world and these sorts of things are often people who are very discouraged because they see how little they can do compared to all that there is to be done. Here God says, I'm going to give you the vision and I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to let you see the need of justice and you're going to want to sort of mount up and go riding out to battle, but you're going out to fight a a foe that you can't defeat. So I'm going to give you strength. You're going to turn back the battle at the city gate. You're going to be besieged. The city's about to fall, then I'm going to empower you and you're going to be the one who turns it back. I'll give you the vision of justice I'll give you the strength to do it. And in that combination of of authority and power or might and right, justice and strength, that's where you'll see how beautiful I am. The people, in verse 14, don't think they need this. They're scoffing. Verses 7 through 13 really tell you that all the leaders, they're like drunken children, in a sense. They're they're, they're drunken and they're childish. You know, they're, they're teaching a bunch of nonsense, Verse 14, you have these mockers who are scoffing. And they're basically saying, look, no one can touch us. We've entered into a covenant with death. We're allies with death. Death has told us that we're going to be fine. It'll pass over us. This sort of thing, again, we would never personify death quite this way. But the amount of, of trust, particularly a younger generation who thinks that they will never die, theoretically. At least, theoretically, you don't think that, but practically, you don't think you will. There are a lot of people who actually sort of believe that, well, by the time I'm 70, depending on how many years there are between now and 70, they'll have a cure for this and that and the other thing. And and almost, life may be almost extended indefinitely. We put such a massive amount of trust in healthcare and technology We've made a covenant with technology that's going to deliver us. God says, listen, I'm going to annul your covenant. You you think you have a covenant with death. You think you're going to be the ones who live forever. You're going to think disaster can't fall on you. You think that, that, uh, that whatever quality of life you can maintain has to just get better and better and better and better and better. Well, don't forget that I exist. Your technology is no good without me. I can bring things down very quickly. And so I will, you reject me. You reject me, but, but I, I have something I'm building, something which is going to last. I have a cornerstone I'm going to put down. I'm, and, and we get this, from, of course, from Psalms. This cornerstone is going to be rejected, picked up by Jesus, picked up by Peter in First Peter. Beautiful metaphor, beautiful image. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. God is building something, and He's building it around Jesus And if you reject Jesus, then you reject God's architectural strategy for the universe because everything fits around Him. And so here, you have a choice. You can either follow God's blueprint, which will be done. 
or you can come up with your own, which will certainly fail. And there is no third position. Those are the options. God says, I have a cornerstone. I'm building everything around it. You have chosen a fictitious covenant with death, which I will override. So you will either be built on me and flourish, or you will be built on your own machinations and realpolitik, and you will be destroyed. If you understand this, you will be terrified. That's what he says. This is one of the ways you know that the world doesn't understand the gospel. If you understand the gospel and you reject it, you ought to be terrified. If you take God seriously and you reject His plan, the understanding of what you have done ought to bring sheer terror. That's one of the metrics. It's one of the ways you can tell people to understand. They're cavalier and flippant about it. Isaiah says, the understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. Because your eggs are going to be all in one basket. If they're with God, you're fine. Do not diversify your portfolio spiritually. It's all here. It's all or nothing. But if you're not here, then all there is is death. And no matter what you've tried to broker with death, it is not your friend. The understanding of this message should bring sheer terror. Chapter 29, woe to you. This is a collection of woe oracles, these chapters. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. Now, Ariel is Jerusalem, the city where David settles. Why Jerusalem is called Ariel here, I'm not sure anyone actually knows. Uh, it has nothing to do with the Little Mermaid, that's for sure. Uh, but I really, really am not quite sure. It does, the, there's, there's a, maybe a play on words here with its sound in Hebrew, with hearth and all the rest, but uh, I, I don't really know. Uh, what's clear is that this is a description of Israel, or of Jerusalem rather, and it's a description of judgment. Now, why are they being judged? There's lots of reasons, but one that you will remember is in verse 13. It says this, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Now, where have you heard that before? If you're not familiar with that from Isaiah, you are familiar with that from where? From Jesus. Jesus condemns in a, one, of his, one, of, one of those blistering sections the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Why? Because they're really good about disobeying the law of God in order to uphold their human rules. This is one of the diagnostic, this is one of the diagnostic features of religion. Human rules 
all of a sudden are somehow put in place or put raised to the level of divine command with no ability to differentiate. And these don't even need to be spoken. They can be unspoken codes of conduct. This is how we do things. This is how we dress. This is what we say. These are the sorts of ways that we have decided to conduct ourselves sociologically. You break those taboos, spoken or unspoken, and you get wrath. You get judgment. You get rejection. Why? Because somehow a bunch of human rules have been elevated as if they are the Word of God. This is why Jerusalem is being judged in this chapter. It's religion. It's not even God's religion. It's a bunch of made-up human stuff, accretions, things surrounding the law of God. Well, we're thinking through whether some church, some Baptist churches have church traditions which militate against the Word of God. And then how hard is it to move past church tradition to align with the Word of God? I'll be very careful, very careful church, that what we do is not based on human rules. Very careful, individuals, that how you approach your life with God is not based on human expectation, but is actually based on what God says. Here it's the rejection of God for religious legalism. Jesus tells us to choose love instead. Chapters 30 through 31 basically tell you something you've heard already, which is if you reject God, you're in a lot of trouble. And if you make political alliances and military alliances and economic alliances and you're putting all your trust in that, you're in a lot of trouble. Verses thir- chapters 30 through 31 are about uh, those who reject God and rely on Egypt. They're going to come to nothing. Those chapters are worth reading, but we've seen those sorts of things before. Then chapter 32, well worth reading... Um, in fact, I'm going to. I'll just, I, I'm going to read just six verses. I'm going to read the first six verses, and I'm not even going to make a comment about it. I'm just going to move on. Chapter 32. No, I really will. What? Okay, well, now I will make comments. 32, 1 through 6. C. A king will reign in righteousness, and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluid and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For fools speak folly, their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, and from the thirsty they withhold water. Scoundrels use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. A king will reign in righteousness. And rulers will rule with justice. 
Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm. Chapter 33, <laughs> verses 1 through 6. Parenthetical remark, which isn't the same as a comment. You missed out on a lot of good comments. First, chapter 33, verse 1. Woe to you, destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Lord... Be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning. Our salvation in time of distress. At the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts, like a swarm of locust people pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with His justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. It is passages like this and 32 and all the rest, which does make me think it would be well worth spending a couple years in Isaiah. There is a matchless grandeur to the presentation, not only theologically, but in, but in, in, in terms of, sort of its literary presentation. That's, it's incredible. In a context of betrayal, woes, destruction. You plead with God. God, be gracious. Why? We long for you. Well, do you? Do you experience that? Do you know what that's like? And maybe you long for God precisely because things are difficult, precisely because there's, there's woe and there's danger and there's threat. You long for God. Maybe we don't long for God Maybe we're complacent and a little bit apathetic when we're trusting in material comfort in the things around us. Be our strength every morning in times of distress. Why? The Lord is exalted. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation of your times. Can you connect that with the cornerstone, the, uh, the verse earlier in the set, in the section? Why is He the sure foundation for our times? Because He's laid a cornerstone that He's building things around. That's why. That's why you can trust Him. Your times are anchored in His eternal plan. Do you know that? The, the vicissitudes of your life are, are, are built around the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ, the solid rock. God is the foundation for your times if you will be built upon Him. He's a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. How do you access this? It's through the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, see, if you, if you reject Him, the understanding of that message should bring sheer terror. Here there's a slightly different kind of fear. The fear of, of adoration and awe and respect in the presence of someone who is terrible, 
terrible, not in the sense that we use it today as awful. Actually, this is the exact same thing, awful, full of, makes you full of awe. That's what the word awful is supposed to mean. To be terrible is to be, to be exalted and powerful. But if you're the enemy, if you're this person's enemy, you should be full of terror. That's what terrible is supposed to mean. As we come to God who is awful and terrible, and we fear Him, we revere Him, we take Him seriously. He is God. It's no easy thing. You don't, you don't, come, you don't come strolling casually into His throne room. The fear of the Lord opens up all the divine treasury for you. Wisdom, knowledge, holiness, life, salvation. It's treasure, and it's offered for you. It's the divine treasury. And the most beautiful thing of all is this, verse 17, your eyes will see the King in His beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Your eyes will see the King in His beauty. This is the Davidic king in context. The fulfillment of the Davidic kingly covenant and line is found in Jesus. What you are told here is that if you fear the Lord, He opens up all the divine treasury for you, but it's not the stuff. It's the person. It's the king. The king you've longed for. And he comes to you. And he rescues you. Slays all the dragons of death and sin and shame, guilt, separation from God. And he loves you. He loves you profoundly. He is your king who dies for you to live again, to reign forever with you as his bride. And throughout all of eternity, throughout all of eternity, the most beautiful spectacle there is to ever be seen. is the king in his beauty who has died to make a desperately defiled and fallen woman saved and cleansed and purified and beautiful too. And at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the king who died marries this woman that he died for. He takes His church, His bride, and throughout all of eternity, the angels and all of creation will celebrate the beautiful story of the King in His beauty and the Queen that He has made to be beautiful, to reign alongside of Him. And that's us.
that's our future. And if that's our eternal future built around Jesus, then surely we can begin as desperately hard as it is day by day. We can capture a vision which buoys us up and allows us to recognize, yes, even now our times are in His hands. Our circumstances are built around the foundation of Jesus Christ, and this is where we are going. And if it really will be more than a fairy tale ending, perhaps we can put up with some distress and difficulty now. What wouldn't you go through to see the king in his beauty? He calls you to it today. Chapter 34 judgments against the nations, uh, particularly Edom. I just want to make one note of verses 9 through 11. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. Just for the first time in an extraordinarily long time, uh, I lost my place. Where, where, where did I end? Again. But where, where is the word Again. Verse 10. Yes, the end of verse 10. Thank you. Verse 11. Oh, my goodness. The desert owl and screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Ah, my eyes are not working. Here you have Edom representative of the nations being totally destroyed. Edom is fertile and it's going to be ruined. Burning, it's going to be a burning wasteland. Verse 10c is important. No one is ever going to go there again. I, mean, I, should, I should know that because I see one of the key references here. No one will ever go there again. Now, that is important on its own, but it is vital to the next chapter. Because now what's going to happen is you are going to get the culmination of this whole section of woe oracles, which is going to be something amazing that God is going to do. And the contrast with Edom is intentional and necessary. Chapter 35. You've just been told that God is going to make sort of a fertile area utterly desolate. Now you're told this. The desert and the parched land will be glad The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. 
and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is where God is bringing you. Woe, 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 destruction, burning pitch, desolation, no one will ever go through Edom again. But there is a place where people are going to go. There is something that God is doing which is going to be absolutely transformative. Now, you can slot this, and different people do. You can slot this chapter out into a few different places eschatologically if you want to. One of the things that's really important, two things that are really, well, there's more than two, two that I'll mention now that are really important for understanding this passage and its location in terms of eschatology are this. One, Jesus will refer to it. If you want to understand how to read Isaiah, read it through the Gospels. Jesus will tell you how to interpret it because Jesus finds Isaiah fulfilled in his day. It's the first thing. If it's fulfilled in Jesus' day, it's fulfilled. Second, this is clearly poetry. One of the things that has throttled us in terms of accurately understanding the Bible, is insisting that poetry be interpreted as if it's literal prose. That's not a hermit, that's not a theological issue, it's a literary one. We need to learn to read poetry like poetry. That's what it is. And you abuse the text when you make poetry prose. And you'll never po- and you won't possibly interpret it properly. For example, the desert and the parched land will be glad. Now, are we really ascribing emotional life to the land? That'd be actually an interesting question. The wilderness will rejoice. Does the wilderness actually overflow with joy? Also an interesting question, actually. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. Probably not. The wilderness is not literally shouting for joy. It is. It has vocal problems. Larynx is a little strained sometimes. So, so what is this saying? Saying that, that it's going to flourish, and in its flourishing, being what it will be, God will be glorified and it will rejoice. The curse is sort of being pushed back a little bit. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. God is destroying Edom, so that Edom is now a desolate wasteland where no one ever goes. But he's transforming the desert into something beautiful. He, he's, he's quite literally transforming the desert into a garden. That's what this, this, is what this imagery is. And everyone in the, in, the, in the desert, which is now a garden, is rejoicing as it comes to life, as it begins to bloom. Isaiah will love images of trees clapping their hands of mountains rejoicing before the Lord. Creation liberated from the curse, being what it was always meant to be, rejoicing and glorifying God simply by its intrinsic nature. It sees the glory of the Lord and responds with joy. So as God does this in the land, metaphor poetry, clearly, you are supposed to work with people 
So strengthen the feeble hands. Say to the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Now, what happens, or when will this happen? Well, you'll know this is happening when the blind see. This is verse 5. Then, that is at this time, at the time of fulfillment of verses 1 through 4, then will the eyes of the blind be opened. That's, your, that's a textual reference. I'm not making that up. It's just right there. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, at this time, will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, burning sand becomes a pool, etc. But you're back to poetry. How do you know? Because John the Baptist is going to be imprisoned. And he's going to send his disciples to Jesus. He's going to say, look, you're the the Lamb of God. He's the sin of the world. You're the Messiah. Here I am in jail. You haven't thrown out the Romans even a little bit. I can't help but notice. Where's this kingdom? And some commentators want to say, no, no, no. John the Baptist couldn't have had any doubts. He sent, he sent his disciples for his disciples' sake. Nonsense. You go sit in a Roman dungeon with all of your hopes crushed and tell me that you're going to be an optimist. Where's this kingdom? Are you the one who was to come? Was I wrong? Jesus says, Go back and tell John. Report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, what what Jesus does, he says, go go tell John to to read Isaiah. This is exactly what's happening now. This is the fulfillment. John, put, put some chapters together. Because when, when Jesus, this is a clue for you actually, when the New Testament authors, or when Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage, they're usually bringing huge amounts of context with them. That's the only way you'll ever sort them out. They seem like they're always taking verses out of context. They're not. They're bringing wholesale context with them. It, it's implicit. You're supposed to understand it. Go tell John. The lame are, this is Isaiah 35, John. It's starting. There are streams of life in the desert now. There's living water in the desert. There, there, there's a woman at a well in Samaria uh, who's, who's under the hot burning sun and, and she's discovered the water of life. There's streams in the desert, John. The, the lame are literally walking. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. I'm raising the dead. I am the king in his beauty of you have eyes to see. Look. Go tell John. The king in his beauty is here. As we'll see, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. We sing this. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Great, great hymn. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come and leap ye lame for joy. It's marvelous writing. It's Isaiah 35. Jesus heals people physically as pointers to spiritual truth. Jesus raises the dead out of compassion 
but also to demonstrate his power over death. Jesus opens the eyes of the blind to help them in sort of a humanitarian way. Now they can see. But more than that, it's to show the spiritual principle. I'm opening up the eyes of the heart. Jesus heals people who can't walk. It's the same as healing spiritual cripples. Everything that Jesus does in terms of physical healing has a spiritual analog drawn here from Isaiah, and a lot of it's rooted here in Isaiah 35. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. Well, the lame could never go on the way of holiness. The blind could never find their way on the way of holiness. God, remember, Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. And now he has a highway of holiness, a place where people can travel. He's made them, he's equipped them to travel on it. They can see now. They can walk now. They couldn't before. And so God, the God who is holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6, hasn't lowered his standards. He's lifted people up to meet them, which is an amazing thing. This God, remember Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees this vision, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And he cries out, what? Woe. You see here you have a collection of woe art- oracles. Woe, woe, woe. Judgment, destruction. What does Isaiah cry out? Woe. Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The seraph comes with the coal, symbolizing judgment, purifies him, atonement, substitution. Your, your guilt is removed. Your sin is atoned for. Oh, there's a way of holiness, but no one can walk on it. Because we are all ruined and fallen. But God doesn't lower his standards. God can't lower his standards. He can't compromise his deity and nature and being. So he takes a bunch of of spiritual cripples and he gives them the power to walk. No, you'll never meet the standards of God on your own. He will not lower his standards for you, but in Christ he will raise you up to meet them. The unclean won't be there. No dangers of lions or beasts, only the redeemed, those the Lord has rescued. The king in his beauty has been successful in his rescue mission. The king is a knight who comes back victorious to claim his bride. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. The, the, the image here is actually like you're out, you're out walking down this path and, and gladness and joy are chasing you down. They're they're running to catch up to you, and they do, finally. They overtake you. They've caught up with you. Maybe some of you, uh, maybe some of you feel like you've walked a lot of miles without a lot of gladness and joy. Oh, they're coming. They're coming for you. If your faith is in God, they're on the way. They're chasing you down. They're relentless. You can't go far enough or fast enough to avoid them forever. They're going to catch up to you. They're going to overtake you. It's a promise of God. God's going to, and maybe you pray, God, put a, put a little more speed in their feet. <laughs> help, help them get here sooner rather than later, but they are coming. And when they show up, they're not just going to run past you. They're not just going to blow by you. They're going to crown your head, and it's going to be Everlasting. They're not going to be your walking companions for a night or for a season. They're going to crown you with joy forever. Everlasting joy will be your crown. 
There are other companions, sorrow and sighing. They're going to run away. They're going to flee away. They're going to run away from you as fast as their little legs can carry them. Because the king in his beauty is a destroyer of sorrow and sighing. Now, there are different types of sighing I recognize. This is the bad kind. This is the kind that you don't want. Gladness and joy are relentlessly pursuing you. They're faster than you. They have more endurance than you. They're going to overtake you. Sorrow and sighing, they're gone. That's what God calls you to. God says, come. Build your life around my foundation. Trust me. There's woe, there's destruction, there's judgment, there's darkness, there's chaos. But for the redeemed of the Lord, the desert is going to eventually be a flourishing, blooming garden. And it's going to be holy. And you're going to see and hear and rejoice and shout and run and leap for joy. Because they're coming. They're coming. Already in small down payments, some of you already know what it's like to walk with them as your companion. But the full expression of it is coming for eternity for those of us who know Jesus. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. May God help us to fear Him. May God help us to love Him. May God help us to rejoice in Him. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.